Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Diana O'Carroll and Dave Ansel. Diana, you've got an interesting news story for us this week. Tell us about that. Oh yes, uh, it's one of these great questions in archaeology and that is, did farming move across Europe through the spread of knowledge or the spread of people? So um, it now looks like that question is somewhat closer to being answered. And researchers at the University of Uppsala in Sweden have this week published a report that indicates that it was the migration of people that brought farming to the continent. So the adoption of farming is seen as one of the great stepping stones in human development. Not only does it permit more people to live off smaller areas of land, but it also means that a population can be supported that has time to do other things like build impressive monuments and develop new technologies. So across the world, there are several areas where agriculture has its origins. And the closest one to Europe is in the Near East, where it's thought that farming started around 11,000 years ago. So farming took around 6,000 years to move across Europe, that's quite slow, but in order to work out how that spread occurred, archaeologists have several clues to work on. Now the usual lines of evidence are ceramics, technology and language, but this Swedish team, led by Pontus Skogland, looked at the problem using the DNA of four 5,000-year-old individuals. Now one of these was a farmer, buried on the Swedish mainland, while the other three were hunter-gatherers that were excavated on the island of Gotland, 250 miles away. And what they found was that the two groups of people had quite different markers for their origins. The hunter-gatherers shared much of their genetics with modern Finnish populations, and the farmer shared a greater proportion of his DNA with Mediterranean populations of today. So this implies that the farmer was a migrant, or at least a descendant of migrants, and that European hunter-gatherer populations were replaced, at least to some degree, although there may have been some admixture. And it looks like farming was indeed spread along by a movement of people rather than a simple transmission of culture and knowledge. And this has actually affected the genetic diversity uh, that we see today in Europe. So you can find out more about this story in the journal Science. Because the gene that gives you the ability to break down lactose, um, which is the major sugar in milk, you can see that uh, appear all of a sudden when farming got started, can't you? Because obviously if people are keeping animals, they're going to start consuming the milk and there would have therefore been quite a strong selective pressure for people who, who had that gene and could consume the milk without getting irritable bowel type syndrome. Yeah, that's true. Um, the domestication of cattle actually came a little bit after the domestication of plants. Um, but it, it does look like the lactose tolerance gene did sort of arise amongst, amongst the farming populations. Thank you, Diana. Dave, this amazing story that some of the ebb and flow of the evolution of life on Earth might owe its origins to stars blowing themselves up billions of miles away from Earth. Yeah, that's right. Um, If you look at the diversity of life on Earth, so the number of different species and groups of species called genera, it's varied quite a lot over the last four or five hundred million years. It's hard to measure this with big things like mammals and dinosaurs. But if you look at small things like uh, marine invertebrates, which fossilise really, really well, it seems to rise rapidly to about 250 million years ago, then dropping rapidly about 200 million years ago. It's been increasing again over the last hundred million years. Now, these trends are obviously interested geologists, and they've used lots of things to try and explain it. The most effective one being the amount of tectonic activity, which tends to raise the sea level because you've got volcanoes in the sea, so it's a bit like putting stones in a cup so the sea level goes up, which uses lots of shallow seas. 
and more complicated coastlines. And this means you get a very varied marine environment, and so you get more diversity of species because more diversity of um, places for them to live. But it doesn't by any means explain all the changes. Now, Henrik Svensmark has been looking in a completely different direction to explain it. He's been looking at supernovae, which are huge stars exploding at the end of their lives, and he's been looking at them within about 5,000 light-years of Earth. And he's then plotted this um, against the amount of damage that you get to meteorites of different ages. And that seems to agree for the last few million years, so that sounds like it's working. So you can put the supernova events at the same points in time that they're having an influence on Earth. So you can show there's a corresponding effect on Earth, and then he's tying that to, well, what was life doing at the same time that these things were going off bang and then having an effect on the Earth? That's right, and then he's compared it to the life. And if you take away the effect of the tectonic things, it lines up absolutely beautifully. It's an incredibly good fit. Wow. So what would be the theory? What do they think is is happening then when a star in our close cosmic neighbourhood goes bang? What is it doing to the Earth? How could it influence the Earth to make life flourish? So supernovae are thought to be a source of many of the high-energy particles flying through space called cosmic rays. They crash into the atmosphere, forming trails of ions, which can, in some conditions, form clouds, which cools down the Earth. And in a cool Earth, there's more variety of habitats because you've got the polar habitats and then you've got the habitats around the equator. He's also looked at the number of closed supernovae and the number of kind of unexplained, very rapid cooling events on Earth. And the periods when there should be quite a lot of supernovae, there's quite a lot of these unexplained cooling effects. So supernovae could be having a huge effect on us. It's amazing to think that we're being influenced not just by our own star, the sun, but by stars which don't even exist anymore and uh, may have been billions of miles away. There's also a really interesting paper that's been published this week. It's in the journal Nature. And this may explain why people get heart failure. Now, heart failure is very common. And in fact, it's often a consequence of having a heart attack. But it's where the heart doesn't pump enough blood to supply the needs of the body. But it's often associated with inflammation in the heart. So why should the heart become inflamed in the first place? Well, there's a researcher called Kinya Otsu who's at King's College, and what he and his colleagues have done is to use an animal model of heart failure where they apply extra load to the heart in animals, and this makes it eventually fail. And in experimental animals, they looked at the heart and confirmed that you get lots of cells moving in from the immune system into a failing heart. But they also found something very interesting, which is that these hearts that are failing have very high levels of DNA in parts of the cells that are normally the rubbish bin where cells are breaking things down. So the cells seem to be breaking down DNA. They wondered whether the two might be linked. So first of all, what they did is to make some animals that they'd knocked out a gene called a DNAs 2A, which breaks down DNA in the phagolysosome, the part of the cell that breaks down rubbish. And sure enough, these modified animals had a very high propensity to developing heart failure and at the same time had large amounts of inflammation in their hearts. So then they thought, well, what is this DNA and why should the inflammation occur at the same time? So then they looked at the DNA that was being broken down and it wasn't genomic DNA, in other words, DNA from your chromosomes. In fact, it was your mitochondrial DNA. Mitochondria are these tiny structures inside cells that give cells their ability to make energy. And originally, billions of years ago, they were free-living bacteria. And at some point in our evolution, cells teamed up with these bacteria and they gave the bacteria a home in return for the bacteria, giving the cell energy. And just like the bacteria that they once were, these mitochondria contain their own DNA. They've got a little circle of DNA called mitochondrial DNA. And because it has microbial origins, it looks 
even today, still like bacterial DNA. And so what the team have realised is that this DNA is triggering the immune system because we have in our immune system a special set of receptors called toll-like receptors, TLR, and these recognise bacterial DNA. And what they have found out is going on is that when the heart gets stressed by heart failure, it starts to break down messed-up mitochondria, and that includes breaking down their DNA. And somehow this DNA then activates these TLR immune receptors and makes the immune system inflame the heart. And this puts further stress on the heart, causing it to fail further and increasing the rate of heart failure. And they proved that that was the case by actually administering drugs to animals that can block this TLR receptor. And also they knocked out the gene in another group of animals for the receptor and showed that they didn't get the same degree of heart failure. So it seems that this inflammation is absolutely responsible for heart failure and it also seems that it could be a very good way to intervene and stop the problem. So what's causing the mitochondria to get into trouble in the first place? Well, they speculate that when you have a heart that is stressed because it's under load beyond that which it's capable of coping with, this puts the the cells under biochemical stress. So the mitochondria try to work harder, which means that they wear out sooner, which means the cells then try to break them down in a process called autophagy because normally cells, when they break down waste products, they break them down harmlessly inside the cell and the immune system never gets the chance to look at them. But when the cells are stressed, they can't process the material and break it down harmlessly in this way anymore, and this rubbish starts to accumulate, and then the immune system gets the chance to come and inspect what's going on in the cell, and that's what then drives the response. So if you could stop the cells getting stressed in the first place, or prevent the immune system from inflaming the heart muscle and compounding the stress, you'd probably have a new way perhaps to intervene and treat people for heart failure without having to resort to other mechanisms which really, in the grand scheme of things, have limited benefit at the moment. Now, scientists have also this week homed in on the parts of a pigeon's brain that enable it to use the Earth's magnetic field to navigate. And Louise Anthony has been finding out a bit more. Pigeons, as well as a host of other species, including bats and fish, are known to be sensitive to magnetic fields and they appear to be able to use them to find their way around. But exactly how these animals detect and then process this information neurologically has always remained a grey area. Now, working with homing pigeons, David Dickman from the Baylor School of Medicine in Texas, together with his colleague Lurching Wu, has identified the parts of the brain that give these animals their mental compasses. Dickman and Wu reasoned that nerve cells involved in decoding magnetic signals should be activated by changes in the surrounding magnetic field. So to track down these cells, as David Dickman explains, they began by exposing a group of birds to a changing artificial magnetic field and then looked in the animals' brains for nerve cells that had switched on a gene called CFOS, which is an indicator of nerve cell activity. We put birds inside a magnetic field, rotated the magnetic field around their heads, then reacted the brain tissue for the CFOS antibody, and we found four major locations that were strongly activated by magnetic stimulation. One of them turned out to be in the vestibular nuclei. Another one turned out to be in the anterior thalamus, an area that processes spatial information. And the third was the hippocampus, which is well known to be a spatial memory center. And the fourth was an area of association visual cortex. These are all regions that are known to be involved in navigation functions and spatial orientation. In other words, knowing where you are, what position you're in, and in which direction you're pointing. 
Next, to find out how these nerve cells might be processing magnetic information, Dickman and Wu placed seven pigeons in changing magnetic fields of a similar strength to the Earth's own magnetic field, and then used electrodes to record the nerve activity in one of the brain regions they'd already identified, the vestibular nuclei, which also helped to control balance. We placed birds in the dark because there's a competing idea that the retina has a photopigment contained inside the retina itself, which uh, could be reactive under certain wavelengths of light to magnetic field. So we didn't want to activate those receptors if they exist. So we put the birds in total darkness, and they were motionless because we didn't want to activate the vestibular system since we were recording from vestibular cells. So while they sat there quiet, um, we rotated this magnetic field around them in different planes, and we found that the neurons are all tuned to a specific direction in space. And the tuning is really interesting because the neurons respond when the magnetic field is pointed basically in all directions except one plane where they're silent. And they build up the response so that when the magnetic field is pointing in one direction, the cell likes it the most. And when it's pointing opposite that, its cell likes it the least. And the responses of those cells effectively signal the strength direction and the polarity of the magnetic field. In other words, whether the bird is pointing north to south or south to north. And this means that the birds can most likely use this information to work out where they are. If you look at the Earth's magnetic field, what you see is that the field lines come out of the south magnetic pole, they circle the Earth and they go back in in the north magnetic pole. And they come out of the Earth at different angles, depending upon whether it's the south, north or the equator. It's 90 degrees at the poles, and it's zero at the equator, and then it varies systematically between the equator and the poles. That's called inclination angle. These neurons, theoretically, could use that inclination angle to tell you your latitude. But what they still don't know is how the birds are actually detecting the magnetic field in the first place. So whether it's a magnetically sensitive chemical in the eye or deposits of an ion-containing mineral like magnetite, that's still a mystery. But there are several possibilities. There are three candidates out there, the retina, using these photopigments, and we've never looked at retinal cells before. The inner ear, where these iron particles that were found by another group, and then the beak. Although the beak looks like the magnetite is macrophages, it could be that there's still a mechanism there, but it's yet to be discovered. There are behavioral studies that suggest that the beak is involved. We really don't know. We'll probably go after the uh, receptor in the inner ear first uh, because we're familiar with that territory and we've done some preliminary experiments about that already. So for the moment, at least, the jury is still out. But in the meantime, there are some very real potential spin-offs from this work that could benefit us too. Humans often have disruptions in their spatial orientation ability, particularly people with dementia or people that have inner ear disease, such as Meniere's disease. They find it very difficult to sometimes even you know, find their way to the kitchen if the lights are turned off and that kind of stuff, or they lose their way when they're driving from home to the grocery store. So we have an idea now about how the brain is taking some signals and feeding into this uh, what we call the navigation network. So we're, we're hoping that that will lend us some clues that we might be able to use in the future to help people with spatial orientation and spatial memory loss. David Dickman speaking with Louise Anthony, and that work was published this week in the journal Science. Dinah. And now, with a roundup of the other science stories hitting the headlines this week, here's Mira Senthilingam. 
High-resolution 3D images of human tissues can now be created using a technique developed by scientists at the University of Leeds. By scanning hundreds of slides of sliced tissue segments at once and converting these into high-resolution digital images, the software developed by Derek McGee then aligns these images to produce detailed, multicoloured visuals in three dimensions, with over 400 created to date. The technique can be used on numerous tissue types, including tumours, and enables samples to be rotated on a computer screen and monitored from any angle. Within the human body, some things are inherently 3D structures, and looking at them 2D does not give you the same information. So I'll take as an example blood vessels. Blood vessels are a branching structure of tubes. If you cut a tube as a 2D section, all you see is an ellipse. So if you look at a blood vessel in 3D, you can actually see this branching structure and you can relate it to the structure around it. For example, a tumour, if that's very close by, then you can see, well, has that tumour got its own blood supply or is it a very early stage tumour that has yet to develop its own blood supply? A drug to treat the symptoms of autism has been identified by scientists at the National Institute of Mental Health in the US. Working with inbred mice displaying signs of autism such as unusual social interactions, excessive jumping and repetitive self-grooming, Jacqueline Crawley and colleagues found that when these mice were injected with the compound GRN529, which regulates glutamate release in the brain, these behaviours were significantly reduced. Treatment with this compound that reduces excitatory glutamate neurotransmission in the brain reduces repetitive behaviors, reduces stereotype jumping, improves some of the social deficits that are seen in these mice. We may be able to develop pharmacological treatments that might be beneficial to children and adults who have autism. The challenge, of course, is to find compounds that will be effective in people, but it's one of the most promising leads that we've seen for quite a long time. Large wind farms may be affecting local temperatures and climate in the US. With the US wind industry growing rapidly in recent years, scientists at the University of Illinois analysed satellite data for the land surface temperatures of four of the world's largest wind farms located in Texas to see their effects on local temperatures from 2003 to 2011. The team found a warming effect of 0.72 degrees Celsius per decade when compared to nearby regions lacking these farms. Shulmnath Bordiaroy co-authored the study. Turbulence generated by the spinning of the wind turbine rotors mixes air up and down and the key impact of this is a warming effect near the surface and on the land surface at night. Now, wind power does not generate almost any carbon dioxide emissions, and hence, wind power is going to be a part of the solution to the climate change problem. Understanding the impacts of wind farms will help us develop efficient adaptation and management strategies and thereby contribute to a long-term sustainability of wind power. And finally, subordinate members of a meerkat social group are the best at solving problems. Alex Thornton from the University of Cambridge set tasks for seven groups of wild meerkats where the animals were required to open or break into transparent containers to reach the scorpion supper located inside. The team found that lower-ranking members of the group, and particularly males at this rank, were the most successful at solving the task. And the reason for this is probably that these individuals are unable to outcompete others, so unlike the dominance, they can't bully their way to get 
food rewards. So there are advantages for them to try and find out new ways of solving problems. And for the males, this is particularly advantageous because they're the sex that disperses, that goes out to seek mating opportunities. So they're going to be encountering new difficulties in the world. And so it'll make sense for them to try and find out ways of solving new problems. And that work was published in the journal Animal Behaviour. Mira Senthalingam with our Naked Scientist News Flash. And you can find more transcripts and references for all of those items for the news stories this week on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.